We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 as we continue our study in Corinthians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we open up your word that you would speak to us. We, we so long to hear the voice of our God and to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. And so we pray that as we study, as we think, as I preach, as your word is read and meditated upon, that your Holy Spirit would speak to each heart, that Christ would speak to us, and that we would hear the voice of God through the word of God, we pray in his name. Amen. You know, down through the centuries, uh, in a host of ways, people have hijacked Christianity for their own sinful and selfish purposes. It happens all too often. I mean, there are so many examples. You're probably familiar with the, the big, obvious, glaring examples, often examples that uh, people who don't know Christ point to to object to Christianity. Uh, for instance, you know, there, were the in, there was the Inquisition near the end of the Middle Ages where a Christian, uh, the Christian church, in a desire to push down heresy, because heresy is bad for society, which it is, in order to push down heresy, uh, imprisoned people and tortured people and killed people. And so somehow you, you have Christians in the name of Jesus killing people. So how did we get there? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, or you think about in our own country in the 17th, 18th, 19th century uh, in the practice of slavery and how people took verses out of the Bible, out of context, and wove them together to create this bizarre theology of race, which is not in the Scripture, and then use that for their own oppressive economic ends. And so you say, how did we get there from the Bible? People take Christ, and they take His Word and theology and use it for their own ends. Or think about today, uh, you know, if you think about TV preachers and televangelists, who, especially those who are part of the kind of the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, who, who take verses about, you know, God wants to bless you and God wants to take care of you and weave those together into a message that says, if you just have enough faith, you can have the things that you want. And then here are these preachers who, in some cases, are raking in the dough through their ministries. And you think, how, how did we get there from here? But this happens all the time. Fortunately, we never misuse God's Word for our own selfish purposes. Fortunately, we never take Christ and, and use it, or, or the church, and use it as kind of a way of baptizing our own agendas and our own desires. One could argue that that's what was going on here in 1 Corinthians, as we've been studying 1 Corinthians over the past couple Sundays, that, that the Corinthian Christians in that church were taking the church, and specifically they were taking the apostles, and, and they were using them as a way to advance socially in the, the social system and context in which they found themselves. They were latching on to Paul and latching on to Apollos, as we've been studying, putting them up on a pedestal, like we talked about last week, and then by associating with these different apostles, using them as a way of kind of gaining social leverage to be, to be with the, the, the better apostle so they could look down on the other people in the church. There was this kind of ladder climbing that was going on. And so uh, Paul really, I think, puts his finger on that. If you look at chapter 4, verse 6, it's a little out of order, but I, but I just want to show you the problem uh, that, that presents itself in verse 6. 
And Paul puts his finger on it. He says, chapter 4, verse 6, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. What was written, quoted earlier in 1 Corinthians, if you've been studying it with us, is to only boast in the Lord. But they've gone beyond that, and they're now boasting in people. They're taking pride in people. They're putting different apostles up on the pedestal, and again, using that as a way of kind of one-upping one another in, in those invisible social structures that you can't quite see, but everyone knows are there, and that you kind of feel them. And so here's, here's Paul saying, you guys are doing this. And look at the motivation they have in verse 7. The reason that they're boasting in one another is because of the, for their own selfish interests. Verse 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? They, they wanted to be different and special and higher. Who, who, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so they're, again, trying to point at the things they have, whether gifts or talents or, or wealth or status, and sort of distinguish themselves from other people, and as part of that, including the apostles. So, so you, you know, Paul really highlights this fundamental dynamic that's taking place. They've put Paul up on a pedestal for their own purposes. And what Paul wants to do is take a swan dive off the pedestal. He's like, I don't want to be on the pedestal. You got this all wrong. You're making more out of me than you should. And so Paul is trying to get them to see him not as some rock star, superstar, awesome guy, but, but to just see him as a servant of the church. And so last Sunday, we looked in chapter 3, just to review. Do you remember Paul gave some metaphors to the church for that, as, as a way for them to look at him? And, and that serves really as a metaphor for us. How do we look at pastors? How do we look at elders and other leaders in the church? How are we to view them as kind of rock stars, superstar, up on a pedestal? No, Paul says back in chapter 3. Remember the two metaphors he gave? First of all, uh, apostles are to be number one hired farm workers. You know, the, the, the church is God's field. God makes his field grow. And the apostles, oh, they're just the gardeners out there doing manual labor in the garden. The other metaphor he gave in chapter 3 was construction workers. You know, you're the temple of God, church. D- don't put the apostles up on a pedestal. They're just the construction workers doing their bit for their hourly wage and, and building the church. Well, here at chapter 4 then, as you look at chapter 4, verse 1, again, in this continuing effort to reorient the Corinthian Christians about who the apostles really are, Paul gives a third metaphor in chapter 4, verse 1, and it's the metaphor of a household manager. He says, so then, verse 1, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. The Greek word there for the the servants and those entrusted, it's a Greek word that describes someone who's like an estate manager. So in the ancient Roman world, if you were a person of wealth and status, you might own an estate. But, you know, you certainly didn't want to get your hands dirty in the affairs of running it. So you'd have maybe a slave who was well-educated. Slavery in the Roman Empire is different from what we know from our history. You could be a very well-educated, successful slave. So, So you might be a slave, you might be a servant, and you might have charge over running the estate. And Paul is saying to these Corinthians, like, look, you guys are looking at me 
like I'm the estate owner. I'm not. I'm just the estate manager. I'm just the slave who's trying to run this thing. I was thinking of a, a more modern, more modern analogy, and, and I, I thought of that, uh, that TV show, Downton Abbey. I know some of you are like Downton Abbey fans. I've watched all three episodes with my wife, I'll say. And, and let me say, if you have not seen Downton Abbey, it is... It's... It's... <laughs> yeah, it's something. Uh, it's a period piece, a soap opera set at the turn of the century. But, but it's one of these shows about, you know, upstairs, downstairs British history where there's like the rich landed people and they have the titles and all that. And then there's the people who work downstairs. There's the butlers and the back end staff. And, and, and so it's, it's this kind of soap opera about how, you know, this, you know, the upstairs people and the downstairs people and how their lives intersect and just the drama of their lives and that kind of thing. Um, and you do get kind of attached to these characters. But, but anyway, to use that analogy then, because kind of the same thing Paul's talking about, except in a Roman sort of way, Paul's saying, look, you Corinthians are looking at me as if I'm the rich landed family that owns the estate. And you're trying to get close to me and put me on a pedestal so that you can somehow gain status, uh, as opposed to seeing me like, that's not who I am. I don't own the estate. I'm just the butler. I'm just the valet. I'm the footman. Why are you, you, you misunderstand who I am in this context. You shouldn't do that. And so he's trying to reorient their view of who he is. God is the one who owns the estate, not me. And you're the estate. I'm just the guy who serves the estate. But, but that's what we do, isn't it, as human beings? Isn't it sort of a natural human tendency to identify who's on top or who's at the center or who's significant and we naturally gravitate toward that person. It just happens all the time. It happens in businesses and social circles and academic settings and friend settings. You know, you, you come into a room, you get with some social cons, uh, set of people, and you start to figure out who's significant and who isn't. And in our natural gravitational pull is toward the significant people. You know, who's important? Who has the titles? Who is wealthy? Who is the one that everyone looks to? Who, is, you know, who are the beautiful people in this particular context? Our, our natural inclination isn't to sort of figure that out and say, well, I'm going to hang out with the guy at the low end of the totem pole and talk to him. We just, people don't do that, right? I remember when our uh, oldest daughter, Jane, was uh, going into junior high school, someone gave my wife this book called uh, Queen Bees and Wannabes. Any of you ever heard of that book? It's a great book. It, it is, it's kind of a sociological study of what happens in junior high with girls. And there's this study, observable phenomena, where there's girls who become queen bees, and then everyone sort of buzzes around them trying to get their attention, and, and they become kind of little, I, I don't know, uh, fief, have little fiefdoms of friendship where, where they allow certain people to be the lieutenant and other people to be there, and everyone's always vying for their attention to get in next to the queen bee, and they can be really nasty to people. And I was like, thank goodness that only happens with junior high girls, uh, because I know that never happens anywhere else in society and in the world. Or, or maybe, uh, maybe you might want to look at an essay by C.S. Lewis, which I think is, I forget the exact title, I think it's something called like the inner circle. Uh, and, and he talks about, C.S. Lewis talks about how in social groups there's inner circles and outer circles. And the tendency is to want to get to the inside of whatever that circle may be. And so here are these Corinthians mistakenly thinking that Paul is the inside guy 
that he's the, land, uh, the landowner. And he says, no, I'm just an estate manager. Why are you trying to do, why are you playing this let's get close to Paul game and put him on a pedestal? Guys, guys, I'm just the butler, I'm just the valet, I'm just the slave who runs the, the place. That paradigm has significant ramifications for how we view ministry and how we view those who do ministry. And Paul teases a couple of those implications out here in chapter 4. Having laid out the paradigm, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God, entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with his word. Now that has ramifications. And here's the first one. There's two two ramifications. Ramification number one, it means that the primary job of the apostles and of God's servants is to be faithful. That's the main job. If you look at verse 2, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. If you give uh, your estate to some guy to manage, your main concern isn't, is that guy funny? The main concern isn't, is that person really have a charming personality? The main question isn't, is the person attractive, or are they young, or are they old? The main question is, are they going to take care of my stuff? And are they going to do a good job, or are they going to ruin it, or squander it, or embezzle it? Are you going to take care of my stuff, or are you not going to take care of my stuff? Are you going to be faithful? Faithfulness is all, it's like, who cares? It's just, are you faithful with what I've given you? And so Paul is saying, that's what's happened to us. The Christ has entrusted to the apostles the gospel and his church, and the Word of God. And so the the question is, are they being faithful with the Word of God? This is what God is looking for from all of us as Christians, for all of his leaders. He's looking for faithfulness. You know, not necessarily flashiness, not not in the world's sense, someone who's awesome or clever or gifted or talented, though you may be talented, you may have gifts, you may be awesome, but, but that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for faithfulness. And when we think about that, that, that really changes the paradigm. So let's say, for instance, hypothetical situation. Uh, you had to move to another part of the country, uh, job, I don't know, school, whatever. You moved, got tired of the cold, went to Florida for good, you know, whatever happened. And you're like, okay, I need to find a church. So you start church shopping, that painful process. And finally, it comes down to like two churches. Church A, uh, the pastor, he's okay. He's kind of, you know, he's not that great of an order. He's not terrible, but he's not great. And uh, the pastor's kind of, well, he's not the same age as you. And he's from a different part of the country, has a different accent. And maybe you, you just don't connect with him as a person naturally, instinctively. You know, some people you just meet and you're like, this is my soulmate. And there's other people who you feel like, you're a nice person, but you're just from a different place than I am. And you look at the church, and it's a little, it's a little smaller, and they don't have, it's not as well organized. And, you know, the pianist, there's uh, some work that needs to be done with the pianist. And uh, so you're like, okay. But, but in that church, the, you know, the, you say the good thing in this church is they preach the Word of God. And the gospel is taught here. And these people, they really pray, and they're really seeking the Lord. And they're not exactly the kind of people I would normally hang out with, but... You know, they're trying to be faithful. Huh. And then there's Church B. And this pastor is amazing. He's so talented and funny, and he preaches. It's like cats. I laughed, I cried. You know, 
It was such an incredible experience, and the music is, like, ridiculous, and the fog machine is, like, puts out so much fog, and, uh, you know. But, you know, I just noticed that, that I go away, and I'm not always sure I heard the gospel there. I'm not always sure I came away really knowing Christ more. I'm not always sure that, that I really came away understanding God's Word. I mean, I was, it was definitely an emotional experience, but did I go away thinking, this now is how I ought to live closer to Christ? It, it wasn't heretical, but it was just kind of light and fluffy a little bit. Uh, you know, and so if, if you're in that kind of situation, where should you go? C- could I encourage you, if you ever find yourself in that kind of situation, to make sure you give Church A a second thought and really look at Church A? It might be harder it might take you doing a little more work, you know, that maybe this preacher isn't as great a natural communicator and have those kind of gifts, but if they're preaching faithfully, might it not be worth the effort to kind of bridge the gap as the listener and to say, you know, okay, so they're not the greatest preacher, but what are they trying to say? Because I think it's from God's Word. I really want to hear it and really want to apply it. So that might take some work for you and some effort. It's not like being in church B where it's just so easy. It's just show up, crank back the lazy boy and feed me because this is great. I love it, you know. But what are you getting? What are you being fed? How are you growing? How are the people? Are they praying? Are they really seeking Christ? And Paul says, it's about being faithful. It's about being faithful. And so if you're a pastor here this morning, if you're an elder here this morning, if you're a deacon, if you're one of our growth group leaders, if you're a youth, uh, youth worker in our youth ministry, do you teach Sunday school? Do you lead in the music ministry? Uh, do, you ha- do you have some role in trying to encourage others? Have you been entrusted with even a little bit of the ministry of God as represented in this church or some other church? You know, what does God want from you? He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to be faithful to the gospel, to be faithful to His Word, to be faithful as a person, to be holy and to obey God's word. He wants you to be faithful in prayer. He wants you to be faithful in loving each other as a body. You know, we can't control how gifted, talented, smart or our background is. No one can control that. And you know what? It doesn't matter because <laughs> that comes from God anyway. God doesn't care. He's not looking at your talents or abilities and assessing you that way. He's just saying, okay, look, I gave you this. What did you do with it? And we're sitting there going, why don't you give me more like that person? That person seems to have more. No, no, no. God's like, what are you doing with what I gave you? Are you being faithful with that little? That's all that matters to the Lord is faithfulness. This is such a great word. You know, uh, I don't have a lot of tattoos on me, like zero. But if I were to have one, that might be a good word to have tattooed on me. Faithful. Every time I look at my hand, faithful. I need to be faithful. Faithful to the Lord. And then there's a second significance coming out of that in, that's state manager imagery. One is that we need to be faithful. And here's the second one. God's the one who decides who's faithful and isn't. It's not you or me. So let's stop judging the apostles. And that's what was going on in the church. The apostles were like, I like Apollos, but Paul is kind of lame. And they'd be like, are you kidding me? Paul's the bomb. Apollos, he's new. I don't really like Paul. So they're judging the apostles. And Paul says, stop it. God owns the estate. He's the one who judges the estate managers, not you. Verse 3, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. 
My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives. Ah, that's what you can never see, is it? The motives. God sees them. God's going to expose the motives of our hearts. And at that time, each will receive his praise from God. God is looking at our hearts and our motives. And that's so important that our motives are weighed by the Lord. Because, you know, you can get into ministry for all kinds of reasons. We, we, can, we, we can get involved in a church or serving a church or becoming a pastor or serving on a ministry for all kinds of motivations. All kinds of things lurk in our hearts. We, we too can hijack the church for our own selfish purposes. I mean, has it ever been the case that somebody has gone into some kind of ministry because deep down they wanted people to appreciate them? Because deep down they wanted people to be like, whoa, you're awesome. You, you know, a need to be needed, a need to be liked, a need to be affirmed, a need to feel significance in life. And people's questing for significance. And so hey, I can go to a church, and, and you know, I, can, I haven't found that in life, but maybe in the church I can finally be appreciated for who I am, and people can see the awesomeness that I know is in me. And, and, that, and that motivates people in churches all the time. And it's probably the case that even those of us who aren't primarily motivated by that have that motivation lurking somewhere. Where, you know, our motivations are complex things, aren't they? They're not usually just one or the other. They're, we're very complex as people. All kinds of things lurking in our souls. But here's Paul saying, look, God judges. God's going to look at our motives. Each one will receive, verse 5, his praise from God. And so Corinthians, and so Sasha Baptist, and so Jeremy, stop putting people on pedestals. Stop, stop using God or the church or theology or the Bible as a way of covering and facilitating my own selfish goals and ambitions. All right, Paul, we get the point. Well, apparently Paul doesn't think so. Because in verses 8 to 13, he kicks it up, the proverbial notch. You know, He says, all right, I'm going to take it a little higher here. I'm going to go a little stronger. The, in a sense, the gloves come off in 8 to 13. He's been trying to encourage the Corinthians not to do this thing with the apostles, putting them on pedestals and all that. But finally, he just hits it super hard. And in verses 8 to 13... He dispenses with all of the niceties and tells it just like it is. And so these are very, in some ways, shocking verses. They're meant to confront the hearer. Um, there's even strong sarcasm in these verses. And so I'm going to read verses 8 to 13. And here's what I want you to listen for. Listen for two things. Number one, listen for the shocking indictment that Paul makes about the motives, the heart, the ideals, and the self-perception of the Corinthians. So he's going to indict them for how they are in a very, really sarcastic way. And then look at, number two, the shocking description of the actual life that the apostles lived, who they were and what they did. Okay, so verses 8 to 13. Already, he says, you have all you want. Already, you've become rich. You've become kings. And that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the arena. 
We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. Wow. Strong medicine. Straight talk right there. But it's good. It's good. On the one hand, you have the Corinthians and all they're trying to be. Paul exposes their motives and their hearts and their ambitions and their self-perceptions. He exposes them as those who are or want to be, uh, you know, verse 8, rich and to become kings and to have all they want. You guys are in charge. You're awesome. You're so great. You're like royalty in the church. Verse 10, they're so wise. They're so strong. They're so honored. These are the things their hearts were clamoring after. And Paul is kind of sarcastically putting a spotlight on that and saying, look, guys, you know, you're just worldly. <laughs> That's what the world wants. That's what the world pushes us toward back then and pushes us toward today. The world says that the point of life is to have what you want, to be rich, to be in charge, right? To be the princess, to be the prince, you know, to be clever and to be strong and to be honored and respected and in charge. I mean, all that stuff, it's like, wow, that's, that's the world's definition of happiness, success, meaning whatever. And not just the world's, that's inside my own soul. My soul craves those kinds of things. And Paul says, that's worldly. Don't go that way. Instead, look at the apostles. Now, here's the contrast, right? He says, oh, you guys think you're kings? I really wish you were kings because then you might bail us out. Because let me tell you where I am. I'm at the back of the procession, verse 9, like men condemned to die in the arena. So he's using another metaphor here. Now it's uh, the gladiatorial games. You know, we've all seen movies like Gladiator and Roman gladiatorial events. So typically before the gladiatorial games, there would be some kind of parade, a procession into it. Because, you know, if you're going to see people getting eaten by lions, you might as well have a parade. So, uh, so here's this parade. And at the front of the parade would be like a conquering general or some hero or some important person. And then, then people would come through the arena you know, based upon their status, ranked in the parade. And then at the end of the parade, there might be the people cleaning up after the people on the horses. And then behind them, at the very back, were people who were maybe conquered by the general and who are now going to be fed to the lions. And Paul says, we're there at the back. You guys are fighting tooth and nail to get to the front, but we're at the back. We are condemned to die. And for Paul, that's even more than just a metaphor. He really was in danger of martyrdom, and he did die as a martyr eventually. He says, we're we're at the back. We're fools for Christ. We're weak. We're dishonored. We're nobody. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. Now, Now Paul's, in verse 11, is starting to describe his actual apostolic experience. Paul did not live large as an apostle. He really struggled. Why? Because he couldn't hold down a job? No. Because he had abandoned 
that life in order to go preach the gospel as an itinerant minister, and that was a hard life that involved homelessness and hunger and thirst and rags. So he's describing here what it's like to be an itinerant gospel preacher. He's become a fool for Christ, a nobody in the eyes of the world, traveling around trying to tell people to believe in Jesus, having to work odd jobs to support himself so that he could keep traveling around. What a tough life. He says we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. And so, so when people mock him, he's responding with grace. And so what we have here really is a contrast, I think, between immature Christianity and mature Christianity. This is immature Christians, snapshot, Corinthians. Mature Christians, snapshot, the apostles. Immature Christianity is marked by a very self-serving, self-focused desire to to have status, significance, um, meaning, coolness, hipness, whatever you want to call it, in the eyes of the world, to be viewed as in and normal and accepted. That's immature Christianity. Mature Christianity says, no, 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 it's about humility. It's about self-sacrifice for the sake of loving others. It's about when people mock you because you're not hip and in as the world, responding with kindness and grace. It's it's a very humble, uh, self-denying, other-serving, loving, gracious way of living, a way of living that the world looks at and says, why would you live that way? That sounds like you're kind of a doormat. What about your dreams? What about your hopes? You should make some time for you. And Paul's like, man, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to serve the gospel and serve people. It's a very different kind of picture. That's what mature Christianity looks like, to be a, a fool for Christ in the eyes of the world. Mature Christianity, then, is not a function of how long you've been a Christian. You could be a Christian many, many years and still be immature. It's not like, well, if you've been a Christian 20 years, then you're obviously mature. Not necessarily. You can still be pretty selfish and pretty small-minded and pretty focused on your own needs and on the world and not really have grown in Christ's likeness. Um, It it also means that, that being a mature Christian is not a function of your giftedness or your talents. You could be very talented. You could be very gifted. In fact, God could even use you in big ways and use your talents and gifts, and yet you could still be an immature Christian because you could still use it for your own purposes. I mean, the Corinthians, these people have been Christians for a number of years now. They had all kinds of gifts and abilities coming out their ears. They were having supernatural experiences. They were speaking in tongues. They were prophesying. There were miracles taking place. Wow, it was a spirit-filled church but they were a bunch of babies. How could that be? Because they were confusing gifts and even spiritual gifts with maturity, which is about character and life and love. Gifts aren't bad, but gifts need to be matched with character and maturity. And so so Paul's like, your character is very self-serving and pushy, and it's not humble, and it's not gracious, and it's not sacrificial for others. It's a different kind of maturity that we're talking about. See, a mature Christian is a cross-shaped Christian. 
A mature Christian is a cross-shaped Christian. A mature Christian is a cross-shaped Christian whose life looks like Christ and His cross. To take up His cross. That's maturity in Jesus. And it sure looks foolish in the eyes of the world. And so Paul finally wraps this up in verse 14. And he, he, he backs off now a little bit. He must have known that he really let loose. He says in verse 14, look, look, I'm not writing this to shame you. Maybe a little. No, not writing this to shame you. But to warn you. I just want to warn. I love you guys. I don't want to see you go down the wrong path. I don't want to see you be worldly. I'm writing this to warn you as my dear children. You know, no one can yell at kids like the parents. That's because no one loves kids like the parents. That's why parents go off the hook sometimes, because they love the kids so much. They just don't want to see the kids ruin their lives. And so parents overdo it, because they love so much. And Paul's like, I love you. You're my kids, spiritual kids. And even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. I'm your spiritual father. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. That's what children do. They imitate parents. So there's Paul's big application. Be like me. Imitate Paul. All right, you guys want to put me on a pedestal? Fine, fine, fine. But realize where I really am. I'm not up on the pedestal. I'm down the trenches. Realize where I am. I'm lowly. I'm at the end of the procession. I'm serving. Great, be like me, but be like me as I am, not some fanciful version of me. Be humble and follow me in this path. Follow me in being willing to be a fool for Christ, be willing to suffer for Christ, and to be seen as nothing in the eyes of the world for Christ. I was thinking of that phrase, fools for Christ. I actually met a fool for Christ a couple weeks ago. It was cool. I'll just tell you the story. I was uh, hiking in the Blue Hills with my kids, uh, I think it was two Saturdays ago, and uh, there was a guy up ahead of us who was hiking. He didn't have any shoes on. I'm like, what? You know, is this some like really weird, crunchy guy? Like, why is he, you know? So we caught up with him because, you know, we had shoes. So we, uh, <laughs> and, and as we were passing him, he, he like saw us go by and he turned to us and I thought he was going to ask for directions or something or, or shoes or something. I don't know what he was going to ask for. And he looked at us and he said, are you saved? And I was like, what? You know, don't hear that every day in New England. And so I was like, uh, and before I could answer, he says, do you know Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross? And I said, and he rose again. And he goes, oh, you are saved. <laughs> then, then his next question was, do you only use the King James Bible? And I was like, oh dear. And I said, well, I, I read Greek and Hebrew. And then he's like, hmm, okay. And then he walked off. So that was... <laughs> But then, you know, my kids and I watched him, and he just was like, you know, happily going up the trail. Anytime, anytime anybody would come to him, he'd look at them. He'd be like, are you saved? Do you know Jesus Christ died for your sins? People would go, well, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> like, no, you're not. That's why you need Jesus. But anyway, uh, it's, it's, so, and I saw him just jaunt up the trail. And, and my kids are like, wow, that guy is hardcore. Wow. <laughs> it, uh, so, so you see, you have an experience like that, and you go, all right, what do I, how do I evaluate that? One way to evaluate it is based on outcomes. You know, is it an effective way to do evangelism? Right? Eh, you know, I, who knows? Only, only in heaven will we know if that was an effective way to do evangelism. You know, I, I, who knows? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe, maybe you're like, oh, he's turning people off. Or who, 
Just, it's so tough to say on this side of eternity. But here's a totally different way to evaluate that guy. The cool thing about that guy is he was willing to be a fool for Christ. Like, like probably all of us before we die should at least take one day to go walk around Blue Hill saying to people, are you saved? Not because it's going to start a revival, but just because this probably would be really good for all of our souls to literally become a total fool in the eyes of the world for the sake of Christ. Just to be like, you know what, whatever. <laughs> and sometimes you feel like that as a New Englander, don't you? Like, do I just need to walk up to people and be like, you need Jesus? Because like, how do I get through to people? Maybe we just need to do that for a day. Not because that's our main strategy as a church necessarily, but it would be good for our souls to be a fool. Like Paul, who walked around trying to tell people about Jesus and going to strange towns he'd never been before and standing up in synagogues where he'd never been and just trying to talk to people about Jesus and was beaten and rejected and mocked. Paul says, be like that. Imitate me. Be like someone who's following Christ. Because isn't that really what this gets back to? You know, Paul says, imitate me. And he gives a description of himself in verses 8 to 13. But as I read to verses 8 to 13, I I sometimes wonder, who am I reading about? Am I reading about Paul? Or doesn't that actually also sound like Jesus? Jesus was condemned to die. Verse 10, he was considered a fool. He he became so weak on the cross. He, He had all of the world's dishonor heaped upon him. It's as if the world took all of the manure and filth and just flung it on him and gave him all the dishonor on the cross. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He said, I'm thirsty on the cross. He was stripped naked. He was brutally treated. He was homeless. His life was hard. And when he was persecuted, he blessed. When, When they were putting him on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for what they're doing. So this cross-shaped life, it's not a Paul-shaped life, it's a Christ-shaped life. Because Paul says, imitate me, that's just because Paul was really doing a good job of imitating Jesus. It's what a Christian looks like. It's a mature Christian is a person who really, really, really looks like Christ. And that's what Christ was like. And look how the world responded to him. Christ was the ultimate fool. I use that word carefully not in any condescending way to Christ, but from the world's perspective, the ultimate fool, the ultimate dead-end crusade that led to a cross. But it was there that His power and glory were shown. We need to imitate Paul, who's imitating Christ, and become mature. Could it be that many of the frustrations we feel in the church and in our local churches the frustrations about things we wish we could change if we were handed the magic wand of church changing. I wish I had that wand. There are things I'd love to change, but I can't. But could it be that what I really would need to do would be take that wand and touch myself with it? What if I'm what needs to change? What if deep inside me there is this worldly ambition and selfishness? And what I really need to do is become more Christ-like Have you ever served another person in the church? I don't mean served on a committee. That's good. Do that. But I mean like really served another person. Really done the hard, messy work of putting aside 
your time and having to cancel some of your social engagements or whatever to be with someone who really needed help in the church and just serve them. Have we ever served one another? Have we ever denied ourselves and humbled ourselves and gotten into someone else's pain to be there for them? If we had that attitude more, I wonder what the church could be like. For those uh, brothers and sisters here who are married, um, to be like this in a marriage, wow, to be this self-serving and humble and wanting to build the other up and when, when, you know, spoken to unkindly, respond with kindness. Because, you know, it's obvious, you know, the problem in my marriage is my wife. And she says, well, the problem in my marriage is you. I was like, well, I thought you were. Maybe the problem is our own sin and our own selfishness as opposed to the other person, even though we all bring things to the the equation. What what if we were to take this Christ-like, cross-shaped attitude into that? And what about just our lives in general? So many of us are so frustrated with our lives. We have so many disappointments. Our lives did not turn out the way we thought. We wish we could do a a total do-over on our whole lives as if doing it over again would avoid all the problems, (laughs) you know? And we're so frustrated in our lives, and we're just like, why is it turning out this way? And could it be because really we're assessing our lives in a Corinthian kind of way that what we were looking for as success and happiness in life is, you know, having prominence, having significance, being in control, being honored by the world, blah, 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 blah. And and because we don't have that, we feel like God's cheated me and we're mad at God for the way our lives turned out. But but we were thinking that the purpose of life was those things. And here's Christ saying, take up your cross. And I don't really believe that he means that, but he means it. And here's Christ saying, anyone who loves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will find it. What if the reason I'm so unhappy in life is because I put all of my hope and all my significance in a world that is going to burn as opposed to putting it in Christ, in the Savior? God is calling us to live a cross-shaped life, to be a cross-shaped church, to take up our crosses and learn to carry them every day. That is the road to Christian Christ-like maturity. But the road starts at the cross And this is the first question you have to ask yourself. Have I ever truly come to put my faith in Jesus Christ? You know, you you can't live a cross-shaped life until you've come to kneel at the foot of the cross. That's the first step. You've got to come to that place of saying, God, I have lived my whole life for the worldly things according to my will and according to my wishes. It is sin. It is wrong. I know I am under your judgment but I'm coming to Christ and I'm putting my faith in Him and asking Him to forgive me and to put your trust in Christ. Because you see, we don't just need Jesus as an example. We first need Him as a Savior. We need Him to actually forgive us and change us so that we can follow His example. You can't take up your cross till you kneel before the cross and call out to Christ. Won't you come to Christ today? Is there anyone here who doesn't know Christ that's where life is. Haven't you tried your whole life trying to find it in all of the glitz and baubles and garbage and swag of the world? It's not there. It's not in any relationship. It's not in all the sinful pursuits. Life is found in the Savior Jesus. I would just encourage you and invite you to come to the Lord 
Put your faith in him if you've never done it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and you're so beautiful. In your, in your suffering and death on the cross, the glory of God shone like the sun. Oh Lord, we would have that glory. Not the world's glory, Lord. We want the glory of the cross to cover us. Oh Lord, we want the glory of the foolishness of the cross to be our glory. Oh, Father, would you give us that glory? Would you make us a people who love to serve, who love to yield to the good of others, who love to pour out our lives like Christ, who though he was seated at the right hand of the Father, came, became nothing. Help us, Lord, to make our attitude like that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, making himself nothing, and take the very nature of a servant. And having been found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. God, I pray that you would help us to crucify our sin and to crucify ourselves to this world and to live for you, for your gospel. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here who's never bowed the knee to Christ, that they would be drawn by your Spirit to cry out to you in faith and repentance, Lord. Would you just draw people to yourself, we pray. And may our church be a cross-shaped church more and more. Oh Lord, we pray, wave your magic wand, move your Spirit through your Word, and cause our church to look more and more like you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.